presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the third in our series on Galatians, A Call to Freedom. And today we'll be considering, well, actually we'll be getting into what is really the heart of, uh, of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, I think it's interesting, and this is just by way of uh, introduction, that when Paul visited Jerusalem, as we talked about in our last session, uh, Peter gave him the right hand of fellowship. Uh, today we're going to see that when Peter visited Antioch, where Paul was, Paul publicly rebuked him. The, the incident itself that Paul talks about here in Galatians chapter 2 uh, is not included in the book of Acts. Uh, so obviously Luke just didn't in, include that for whatever reason. Uh, but let's, uh, let's begin by, by reviewing just a little bit. Remember that uh, the, the purpose of, the, of this letter to the Galatian churches was twofold. First of all, to defend the gospel of grace in Christ against perversion by the Judaizers. Remember, in, in fact, in this version that we're reading from here, the English Standard Version, uh, it, the Judaizers are referred to as the circumcision party. Uh, they were the ones who insisted on circumcision uh, even for Gentiles. Uh, uh, in other words, while Jesus was admittedly necessary for salvation, uh, it was imperative that one must not ignore the Mosaic Law. Uh, all of those uh, rules and regulations about diet, about uh, holy days and feast days and new moons, all of those things were necessary for the uh, for the true believer to uh, to keep. And Paul was certainly defending against that because Paul's teaching is that salvation uh, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The second reason that Paul was writing this ties in with the first, and that is he was defending his apostolic authority against the accusations that were being made by the Judaizers. Those accusations he never states specifically, but clearly from the things that he defends, it's easy to uh, certainly imply what the accusations were. And basically, it was just that they were saying these these Judaizers were saying that Paul's apostleship was not genuine. He he was not one of the original twelve. His preaching and work were never authorized by the Jerusalem apostles, and the only reason he visited Jerusalem um, anyway was to ingratiate himself with what they would have called the real apostles. And Paul, as we saw in our last study, uh, answers all of those and. In, uh, in that second study, he, he said specifically in Galatians 1 uh, verses 11 and following that his calling was directly from the Lord. It was independent of the Jerusalem apostles. And, um, and then in the early part of Galatians 2, as we saw, 
uh, he made the statement that he had been recognized as an equal by the apostles in Jerusalem. In other words, they they agreed that uh, they were preaching the same gospel. It was the gospel of grace, but there were different spheres in which they were uh, ministering the gospel. Paul was primarily to a Gentile audience, whereas the Jerusalem apostles uh, were... Uh, were given to uh, ministering to uh, a Jewish audience. <clears throat> so today we look at a uh, uh, a final answer that Paul makes to his uh, to in defending his apostolic authority, where he says, "Look, if you think I'm trying to ingratiate myself with those Jerusalem apostles, let me just tell you this: that I publicly rebuked Simon Peter regarding his hypocrisy." Now that tells you how much. I'm trying to ingratiate uh, myself with uh, with those apostles. So let's uh, let's begin to sort of get the gist of the thought in Galatians chapter two, verse eleven, where where we left off last time. And uh, I'm reading from the from the English Standard Version. Uh, if you have your uh, if you if you are in a situation where you can uh, follow along with the notes, that would be great. Uh, verse 11 of Galatians 2, But when Cephas came to Antioch, now remember that Cephas is, uh, is the Aramaic name for Simon Peter. Uh, Antioch was where the, uh, where the, uh, the focus is, is ch- really changed in the book of Acts around Acts chapter 10. The, there's a real shift from, uh, from, from uh, the work among the Jews to the beginning of the work among the Gentiles. And, uh, and the big church was in uh, Antioch, Syria. It became the great sending church for missions. That's where the three uh, missionary tours of Paul were launched. And, uh, and each time he would come back, and uh, at least the first couple of times he would come back and, uh, and give a report to the church on what was going on. So let's read. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now remember, the reason he's saying this, the reason he's saying this is because what the Judaizers were saying about him, that all he was interested in was just ingratiating himself with the real apostles there in Jerusalem. And so this is his the final nail in his argument in which he's saying, no, I'm, I'm not a, a man pleaser. I'm not a people pleaser. Uh, I wasn't even trying to please the folks there uh, at the home office in Jerusalem. He says, I oppose Simon Peter to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, remember James was sort of the uh, essentially the head of the church. This James was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he says, before they came from Jerusalem, he Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing the Judaizers, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now remember, Barnabas had been with him on that first missionary uh, tour when they went into Galatia and planted those churches there and it was clear that Barnabas was preaching the same thing that the apostle um, Paul was preaching and that is uh, salvation by grace alone and said 
when when Simon Peter, you know, he's he's eating barbecue sandwiches and or whatever Gentiles were eating in those days in Antioch and having a good time with table fellowship with them, and then all of a sudden these Judaizers, these members of the so-called circumcision party from back at the home office showed up. Then Peter backed off, he backed away from the Gentiles, and his hypocrisy was so great in doing that that even Barnabas, who knew better, um, was was taken aback by that led astray, and there were others as well. Now, now, why would he even say this? Well, obviously, first of all, because he's defending his apostleship and saying, I'm not a people pleaser, and I certainly wasn't trying to please the apostles in Jerusalem, and in particular, I was not trying to please Simon Peter. But I think the second reason that he's saying this is because he knew, as well as Peter did, that Peter knew better than all of this. And the reason I say that is because of what we discover in Acts 10 and 11. Now, I put some excerpts from from uh, from Scriptures in your notes. Uh, so... When we look at Acts chapter 10, we're, we're looking around the time of A.D. 37 to 40, somewhere along in there. And I put this in here just to show you that Peter really did know better. He should never have uh, committed this hypocrit- hypocritical action um, when the uh, Judaizers showed up uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, So Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, and this is just background for Peter as to why he should have known better. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, so he's a Roman, and the Roman army, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now this sounds like somebody that we would like to have in our church. He, this is this is a person who uh, uh, who fears God. It says he was devout. That was he, he was a pious person. He gave money. Uh, he prayed all the time to God. But what we discover as we read through this is that um, he had a major problem. And his major problem that while he was religious, he was not saved. Uh, he, He was a lost man. It says, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he began to talk to him about the necessity of uh, of uh, uh, sending to get Peter. And he says, he said to him, uh, "Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. And when he gets here, he'll tell you what you need to know." So. Now, simultaneously with all of this, Peter is uh, at Joppa, and he's up on the rooftop. It's about uh, it's just a few hours later. He's on the rooftop around noon, waiting for the ladies uh, downstairs to get his lunch ready, I guess. And uh, what happens is that uh, he's, he has this vision, and it happens several times of the, the vision of the sheep that came down with all kinds of unclean animals, and then this voice from heaven that said, "Kill and eat." And, he, and his, Peter's response was, "No, no, no! I never, I've never done anything like that, and I'm not about to start right now." 
And God's response to him was, what I call clean, don't you call unclean. And then went on to explain what the vision was all about. And that is that there were some men who were going to be coming to get him, to take him to a, a, a house in, uh, in Caesarea where he was to preach the gospel. And so uh, uh, it says, so, so they did arrive. And uh, Peter went with them without misgivings. And in verse 44, it says, while Peter was still saying these things about how all of this had happened and why he was now at Caesarea, it says, and, and preaching the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Now, it, it, Peter was wise at this point because when he went to this Gentile's house to preach the gospel, he took some of his fellow Jewish believers uh, with him uh, so that uh, he uh, probably because he would have witnesses that everything's on the up and up. So they all get there. Peter, Peter preaches the gospel, and actually, before he can even finish his sermon, it says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers, that is, though, uh, the believers from among the circumcised, that is, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were amazed. Now, why were they amazed? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So something happened there. And, and, and it tells us in verse 46 what it was. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, what was, the, what was God's purpose in, in giving this, uh, this miraculous sign here? Well, remember, the Jews require a sign and it's the Greeks who search after wisdom. Well... By since Peter was going to this uh, Gentile's house, and the Jews were seemed to be sort of reluctant uh, in many ways about even having anything to do with the Gentiles. What God was doing was He was showing that by giving them the same gift that the Jews and the proselytes had received on the day of Pentecost, exactly the same thing. Look, what these Gentiles received was exactly what you guys received on the day of Pentecost. That that was the whole purpose in all of that. It says, Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? They've got the same identical thing that we do. They've got the Spirit of God living within them. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. And I'm sure that was because they were Gentiles. They didn't know much about the Scriptures. And Peter could enlighten them uh, to some extent. And he, he did apparently stay there for a few days. Now... That brings us to Acts chapter 11. Now remember, the reason that we're talking about all of this is because Peter should have known better uh, than to do what he did there at Antioch having had this experience 
at, uh, at Caesarea. Acts chapter 11. Now, meanwhile, back at the home office in Jerusalem, while Peter's doing all this stuff in, in, uh, in Caesarea, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word. That is, that uh, God had done some kind of work here at Caesarea among Roman Roman soldier and his family and his friends and good grief what in the world's going on so when Peter went up to Jerusalem the circumcision party criticized him now what did they say saying you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them notice there's no joy over the salvation of these Gentiles that's evident here. It's we just can't believe that you would do this. You you broke kosher. You stayed with these people. What in the world were you thinking? It says, but Peter began and explained to them, and he explained the whole incident about the vision and about the men who came and about going there and preaching and what happened before he could end end this sermon and he gave them the whole story and it said and he, he he explained it to them and the spirit told me to go with them making no distinction so he's telling about the, and then he says this and notice that that this it was really wise that those uh, Jewish believers went with him when he went to Caesarea it says these six brothers also accompanied me and they entered the man's and we entered the man's house now he wasn't saying that to get these six guys in trouble he was just saying look these guys can testify as to what went on there and those Gentiles well what happened to them was exactly the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost so you can't tell me that what the Gentiles got wasn't exactly the same thing that, that we received at that time he goes on to say in verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. That was the day of Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, and notice what they said, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice, for these people in, in Jerusalem, and many of them had been there on the day of Pentecost, many of them apparently, uh, I'm sure some of them had been among those 70 who had followed Jesus. Uh, but they make this statement, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's like, this is a whole new thought to us. Can you imagine that? It's a whole new thought to them in spite of the fact that there were multiple Old Testament references to the fact that God was going to do a work among the Gentiles. And it was a whole new thought in spite of the fact that Jesus in His great commission had said, you are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You're to start in Jerusalem where you are, then you're to spread out into Judea, 
then into Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. And yet for these people, it was like it was a brand, brand new thought. Now, that's the background. Now, that's what Peter had experienced before. He'd already had a run-in with these Judaizers. But it looked like things had been straightened out. Well, my goodness, uh, God's even going to save some Gentiles, apparently. So, why in the world then... Uh, let me state it this way. Paul's purpose in stating what he does in Galatians 2 about Peter's hypocrisy is to say, look, this guy should have known better. He knew better than to do all of this stuff. Uh, now, what this does also, besides being the, the fi- his final argument about uh, the uh, uh, his own apostolic authority that it came from the Lord Jesus and he genuinely was an apostle regardless of what the Judaizers were were telling the Galatians. It serves also as a transitional passage because what Paul does is he uses this incident to introduce the whole concept of justification by faith alone. And that's what we pick up as we as we begin to read again in Galatians chapter two, beginning at verse fourteen. In other words, what we what we've been discussing this the the from verses eleven through verse thirteen is sort of a sort of a hinge section where Paul is defending his apostleship, and in the course of defending his apostleship, he begins to defend the whole. Uh, uh, doctrine of justification by faith. So let's pick it, pick up the uh, the text in Galatians chapter two in verse in verse fourteen. He's now he's going to begin to shift to his defense of the gospel of grace. Verse fourteen and following. But when I saw. Paul is speaking. He's speaking to the Galatians, when or writing to the Galatians. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, whose conduct? Peter's conduct, Barnabas' conduct, all of those who withdrew from table fellowship from the uh, from the uh, from the Gentile believers. When these guys from the home office came down, this this party of the circumcision, the Judaizers. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Simon Peter, before them all, notice this is publicly. Now why would why would he do it publicly? Why why wouldn't he just take Peter to one side and say, you know, hey brother, you need to reconsider this. Well, the reason for that is because what Peter had done was done in the public and he was wrong. He was hypocritical and he had done it publicly so the rebuke needed to be done publicly as well. I said to Cephas before them all and notice at this point there's a quotation, there's a, there's a beginning of a, a quotation here if you're looking at the uh, English Standard Version. Now in the English Standard Version that we're reading uh, the quotation ends uh, at the at the end of that uh, that verse. Now, the people who translated the Bible are the ones who put the quotation marks there. 
Um, and I think it's important to, to note that while only uh, that portion of verse 14, the ESV says is the quotation, if you look at the New American Standard Version, if you look at the, um, the New International Version, they, take, they do not close the quotation until the end of verse 21, which I believe is the right way because what Paul is doing here is he is writing to the Galatians and he is saying, here is what I said to Simon Peter. And here is what I said to all those who were present at that time. So let's read it that way and just forget about that closed quotation at the end of verse 14. We're going to say that the quotation goes on all the way to the end of verse 21. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now let's pause there for a minute. Verse 15 is an important verse because this is a key statement in his argument. When he says, when he uses the word we, and then uh, uh, later on he'll talk about our, O-U-R, we, he's specifically talking about himself and Simon Peter. We ourselves, Peter, Peter and I are Jews by birth. And he's telling this to the Galatians. He said, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, he's not putting down the Gentiles here. He's just making the point that the the Gentiles were known as flagrant law neglectors. They were ignorant of God's true requirements. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We had all these advantages just being born Jews. We had the Scriptures, the Covenants, the Patriarchs, all of these things. We had these advantages. Yet, verse 16, yet we know... Peter, you and I, well, Peter, you and I know. Now remember, he's talking to the Galatians, writing to the Galatians, but he's saying, here's what I said to Peter in the context of the public rebuke that I made to him. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also. Peter, you and I also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. We know better. We, and we know that no one can be justified by, uh, by the works of the law. Notice his argument goes from the general to the personal, uh, to the personal, and then to the universal. No one, no person, not we, we, we can't be justified by works of the law. No one can be justified by the works of the law. <clears throat> Notice, he says, he says, we know that this is true. This is insisted upon by uh, two of the leading apostles. Uh, we, have, we have believed, we've, we've, we, we confirm this from our own experience. The justification is not by works of the law. But it's, uh, it's through believing in Christ and Him alone. And in fact, that's endorsed by the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, by the works 
of the law, no one will ever be justified. Now, before we go any uh, farther in our in our study at this point, get to verse 17, it's important to understand the term justification. It's used three times in verse 16, as, as you saw. Um, the best definition that I found of justification and the simplest one is justification is that act of God whereby He declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. And notice, it, it, justification doesn't mean that we are made righteous to make some, the, the making of someone right, uh, to be righteous is the work of sanctification where we're, we're growing in our, uh, not only in our faith in Christ, but our conduct is changing and we're becoming more and more like our Savior. The word justification means to declare. It's a legal word. It's, it's a picture of a judge behind the bench. We express, we, we stand before the judge as guilty sinners with our, our feet shackled and our wrists shackled together because we are, we are uh, prisoners of sin. We're captives of sin. And we realize our own helplessness. The Spirit of God has opened our eyes and we realize that we cannot help ourselves and that our situation is hopeless apart from Christ Jesus. And we express faith in Christ and His finished work. That's what it means to believe. And at that point, God declares, God slams the gavel down and He says, you are acquitted. You are not guilty. Now, are we not guilty because we are not sinners? Not at all. We're not guilty because we believe that the Lord Jesus has taken that our place and has, uh, and has received our punishment for our sin. It's a, uh, it's a positional kind of thing. Uh, he had declares us to be righteous. Uh, let me read you a, um, a definition from John Stott, which is a little more definitive than the one that I gave you. It says, Justification is a legal term borrowed from the law courts. It's the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare somebody guilty. To justify is to declare him not guilty, innocent, or righteous. In the Bible, it refers to God's act of unmerited favor by which He puts a sinner right with Himself, not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. So justification is a standing. It is a righteous standing before God. Again, it does not mean to make righteous. That's sanctification. It means to declare righteous, to declare not guilty, to to acquit of one's sins. Now, having said all of that, and I hope understanding what justification is, that it's that act of God by which He declares the believing sinner. We express faith in Christ and Christ's finished work. And having expressed that faith in Christ and His finished work, then God declares us to be not guilty. Christ has taken all... all and we're going to talk about the whole doctrine of imputation a little bit later, but not in this session today. Let's continue uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. 
But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, now again, notice the hour there is refer and the and the we that follows that is referring where Paul is and again, writing to the Galatians, but saying, here's what I said when I rebuked Peter. Here's what I said to him. If in our endeavor, Peter, you and I, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Now, now what, what is he saying here? He's saying, look, Peter and I agree that only in Christ is a person justified. That is, we only have right standing with God through faith in Christ. And here's the argument that he's making. But by trusting in Christ and not in ourselves as law keepers, then the Judaizers think of us as flagrant law neglectors just like the Gentiles, which in their thinking makes Christ an agent of sin since because of Him, we turned away from our own law-keeping efforts. Now again, let me, let me try to say it, say it a different way, if I can. Peter and Paul were devout Jews. They both came to faith in Christ, knowing that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they have turned away from all of their law-keeping efforts. Now the Judaizers would come along and say, you've turned away from trying to keep the law. And the only thing that's made you turn away is your faith in Christ Jesus. Well, if that's true, then... Your sin is turning away from the law and Jesus is the one who made you sin. In other words, Christ is an agent of sin. And Paul is saying here, Peter, that's what your conduct inferred. When you did that and you, you went back, you turned away from associating with the Gentiles and you went back to this old way, you were inferring that Christ was an agent of sin. I, I know, Peter, you didn't realize that's what you were saying, but that's what you were saying, is that Christ is not the right way. The right way is going back to the law. Now notice he's not, oh, he's not finished here. He said, verse 18, For if I, if I, Paul, rebuild what I tore down... Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the law. I don't... I don't... I don't seek to be justified by my own efforts in keeping the law. I've torn that I've torn that down a long time ago. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now notice again what he's saying. He's saying he's he's referring to law keeping in order to establish right standing with God is what he's talking about here. Tearing, that's what he's torn down. But by rebuilding, that is going back to law keeping, that's tantamount to saying by turning away from the law, I was actually sinning when I turned to Christ. See, that's the argument that he's making. He says that, and, and, and Peter, we know that that's not true. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, 
I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now notice, he's here he's giving additional support for his argument where he says, as long as a person's trying to earn his own way or she's trying to earn her own way by law keeping, that is, good works or any kind of system of merit, he or she cannot live for God uh, because merit always leads to boasting. Remember, that's, that's what Paul would, would write about later in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? That no one should boast. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Wait a minute. I'm about to miss one important thing here. One of the purposes of the law is to show us our sinfulness by actually provoking the sin within us. Prohibitions do that. You know, when when you see a sign that says wet paint, uh, the do not touch, the tendency is to want to touch it and see if it's wet. So... The, one of the purposes of the law in provoking the sin, you know, it says don't, don't, uh, don't do this, don't do that. Well, there's something inside of me that wants to rise up and want to do those things. So the sin gets provoked, but the whole purpose in the law is because we is that we realize that this is going on inside of us, and there's some sort of tendency that I have to want to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And that's to drive me to the feet of Jesus to cry out for mercy and say, Lord, I can't do all of this stuff on my own. I can't do this at all. It, um, Paul even talks about in Romans chapter 7 his own experience from that. Uh, and uh, notice he... Uh, well, let's just look at Romans chapter 7 for just a minute. Um, at verse uh, 4 where he says the same thing that he said in Galatians 2. He said in Galatians 2 verse 19, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. In Galatians chapter 7 verse 4 he says, My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, that is, as unbelievers, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that by which... uh, to that which held us captive. Uh, Paul also in another place, uh, later on in Romans chapter 7, says this, and it's a personal testimony that he gives when he says, it was the law, uh, beginning at verse 7, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known what covet, that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came into my life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, in other words, you do all this and you'll live, They brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me 
But still the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But, but how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses, sin uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 19. I have, I have died to, through the law. I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, here he's explaining what dying to the law really means. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Uh, the, The gruesome death that Christ died on the believer's behalf is an indictment about our unsaved condition, how really terrible sin was and is in our lives. And now we, by grace, through faith in Christ, are united with Christ. His death is accounted as the death of our old selves. That is, the people we once were prior to the time of our new birth. Our stony hearts were removed his resurrection is uh, is accounted as our as our being raised to new life and this new life has a new heart a heart that is devoted to Christ as a result of this new birth we now we are genuinely new but we're not completely new the reason we're not completely new is because we are still living in this old body this body of flesh. One day our bodies, just just as our spirit has been redeemed and God has made new creations out of us, one day our bodies will be redeemed as well at that great time of the resurrection, at the time of the return of Christ. Our bodies will be changed. They will be redeemed just as God promised that they would. See, the great mystery of the Gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In one sense, Christ lives through us. In another sense, I still live, but the I that's living is a new I. And this new I, this new person that I am, is not self-dependent. This new person is Christ-dependent. And then in verse 21, he says, here's, here's essentially he's saying, here's what I finally uh, t- said to Peter, what I, what I told Peter in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now what's he saying? Now again, he's writing to the Galatians, but this is a quotation. He said, When Peter acted the way he did and withdrew fellowship there in Antioch, that was hypocritical on his part. He should have known better, 
Barnabas was was uh, was taken aback by that. He acted hypocritically. There were a number of people who act, acted hypocritically. So I rebuked Simon Peter publicly and anybody else that was around at that time. Now, in doing so, why was I doing that? And what, what was it that I said to Simon Peter in terms of the rebuke? And that's what we've been going over. And in verse 21, he concludes what he said to Simon Peter and he's telling the Galatians so that they will understand about the, uh, the, the authority that he has as an, apostle, as an apostle, but also more so that he is opening, he, these are his opening salvos uh, for defending uh, justification uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So he says in verse 21, Peter, your hypocritical conduct of withdrawing from table fellowship with those Gentile believers there in Antioch. It not only caused Barnabas and others to stumble spiritually, but it inferred, what you inferred, that your turning from law-keeping originally as a Jew, that your turning from law-keeping and turning to Christ was wrong. In other words, you'd made a mistake by going to Christ. You should have stuck with the law-keeping, which in turn inferred that Christ was an agent of sin. And your conduct of conduct of turning back to law-keeping also inferred that Christ's death was nothing more than a useless tragedy. Peter, don't you see that? And see, in telling them that, in telling the Galatians what he told Simon Peter, he's telling them, don't you realize also, guys, that when I came, when Barnabas and I came and we preached the gospel to you, and then you were free and you had great joy. And now that joy is gone because these Judaizers have come on and they are doing everything they can to undermine your faith and to turn you back to law-keeping. Don't you realize that when you turn back that you're essentially saying that you were wrong to turn to Christ in the first place? And in fact... Christ was just an agent of sin because what it did was it made you turn away from the law. And that in turn means that what Christ did on the cross was nothing more than a useless tragedy. Wow, what an argument that he's making here. Now, again, I want to emphasize that there is nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and righteous and good. In fact, in First Timothy, uh, in First Timothy one, and I did put this in your notes, beginning at verse eight, Paul, in writing to uh, Pastor Timothy, says this: We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. For we also know that the law is made not for the righteous but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which He entrusted to me. Notice, again, the whole purpose is of the law is to show us our sin. And in the process of doing so, the prohibition of the 
law stirs stirs up these desires within us. And as God opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel and reveals our hopelessness and our helplessness in trying to do what He requires that we do, it drives us to the feet of Jesus and says, Oh Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I can't do it. I trust that what You did for me on the cross. I trust that Your perfect life, that Your perfect life, You never sinned even once. That all of that now, God has declared, accounted to me. And that all of my sin at the cross was accounted to You. And You died not for Your own sin, for You didn't have any. But You died for my sin. And You died for the sins of all of those who ultimately would trust in You. What do we conclude from all of this? I put several uh, applications in your notes there, so we'll just look briefly at those. Notice the first one. The works of the law mentality is prevalent today. Because it affirms the belief that if, if I work hard enough, if I pull myself up by the bootstraps, I can, I can succeed at gaining my own salvation. In, in the way that hard work pleases my boss, so God will please, be pleased with all my efforts and will accept me on that basis. Remember uh, Augustus Toplady's old hymn, Rock of Ages? That second or third stanza, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I cling. Remember one of the stories that Jesus told in, uh, in Matthew chapter 22. He, he, he told the story of the wedding feast for the king's son. And the invitations had all gone out. And um, one of the things, because he was the king, because he was very wealthy, they, he provided a wedding garment for all of those who, would, who were to come. And so there was one. So you know, it's it's the day of the wedding feast, and the son is being honored, and the king begins to look around in the room. And there, everybody's dressed in their in the garments that the king has provided, uh, except for one fellow. And he's over there, and I mean, he just he just claimed, he came in his own clothes, and the king goes up to him and says, "What are you doing here, dressed like that?" And he says the guy was speechless. He had no answer. Every mouth will be closed, the Bible says. He had no answer. And the king said to his servants, take him and throw him out into the outer darkness. See, we can't come in our own righteousness. Our works are not good enough. We have to come... The only way we can stand before God is clothed in the righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He accounts to us, that He imputes to us when we express faith in Christ. And that's when, the, that's when God slams down the gavel, as it were, and says, you're acquitted. You are not guilty. I declare you to be righteous. Not your own righteousness, but I give you the righteousness of my Son. See, if you think back to the, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve 
realize that there's you know they've separated from each other they're separated from God they realize that separation they hid from God and they hid from each other by clothing themselves with uh, with with vegetation and God comes looking for them God is the one who who gave the initiative he came looking for them and what we discover is that the things that they had done to try to make themselves presentable to each other, to hide from each other as it were, to hide their nakedness, and ultimately, ultimately to hide their nakedness from God, that was what their efforts were totally unacceptable. Because what did God do? God slew an animal and clothed them with the skins of animals. See, that's a, that was a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. Our own righteousness is always unacceptable to God. The only righteousness that God the Father accepts is the righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus. We must have His clothing. And the only way we can do that is through faith in Christ. Uh, some of you will remember that old hymn, The Solid Rock by Edward Mote. And the, and the last, I love the last stanza. It says, When He shall come, speaking of Jesus, When He shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in Him be found, Dressed in His righteousness alone, Faultless to stand before the throne. If you want to be faultless, and you better want to be faultless when you stand before God, the only way you can be faultless is not by just trying to kill yourself doing everything perfectly, because you'll never be able to do that. The only way you can stand faultlessly before the throne of God one day is to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And the only way you can have that righteousness is through faith in Christ and His finished work. See, we, we can't merit salvation performing works of the law because the law requires complete, unending, total perfection and there's not a soul on this planet before or after or now that can provide that. The law cannot save anyone. All the law can do is show us our sin and point out the fact that we are sinners and condemn us because we are guilty sinners. There is no mercy in the law. It simply reveals what's wrong. It can't fix the problem. It's like the, the law is like a mirror. It's like looking in a mirror you get up early in the morning and you 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 forgot to brush your teeth before you went to bed the, the night before and you look in the mirror and your hair is going everywhere and you've got spinach in your teeth and you've got uh, sleepy crusts in your eyes and you think oh my goodness now what do you and you're ready to go down to breakfast uh and meet your significant other or be with your children or whatever else and you say I just I'm not presentable I can't do this so what do you do so do you rub your face on the mirror no all the mirror can do is show you what's wrong with you you've got to brush your teeth to get the spinach out you've got to get the comb or the brush out to brush your hair you've got to get a washcloth and get get the crusty stuff out of your eyes and make yourself more presentable now, am I saying that it's up to us to, to, to 
to do all these things in order to make ourselves presentable to God? No. If you, if, if you think that, you're missing the whole point. The point is, is that all the law can do is show us our sin. It cannot fix us. What is it that fixes us spiritually? And that's complete, total trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our human sinfulness, every person's greatest need is to be accepted by God. The apostles Paul and Peter and later on the monk Martin Luther all discovered the truth that it's impossible to make oneself acceptable to God through any kind of system of merit. God's acceptance of any person comes only through faith in the crucified, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Our right standing with God, that is justification, comes to the believing sinner by faith in Christ alone. Because of our inherent sinfulness, the faith required for justification, even that has to be given to us by God. Remember what I quoted a minute ago from Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, the faith, is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Even expressing faith in Christ is dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God to grant us that faith, to grant us the ability to repent. Faith in Christ is the only ground for complete, eternal acceptance by God. Faith in Christ is the only wellspring from which peace with God flows. In Romans 5, Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only through our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't make peace with God. God makes peace with you. God makes peace with me. And He does that through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for His great mercy. Paul later would write in Romans 11 verse 6, If salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We're all sinners from birth. Sin is not abandoning the law. Sin is going back to the law. Sin is turning to some system of merit and turning away from the grace of God. Our relationship to the law has changed. We are dead to the law. We are alive in Christ. The demands of the law were fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. Praise be to God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace and your mercy. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.